Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm Mark Boris and this is Straight Talk. I was ready to die. Temperatures of minus 30 degrees. I was bloodied and broken. It's like hell on earth. Ultramarathon runner Pat Farmer. He circled Australia before and run from North Pole to South. When did you first find this out? Like, how old were you when you knew you could run a long distance? Well, I took up ultra running when I was 18 years old. I was inspired by Cliff Young in the first Sydney to Melbourne race. Cliff Young. And that was all it took to ignite the spark inside me that allowed me to go on and do all the many things I've done for the last 42 years. Can you take me through some of these more interesting marathons you've done? I, I did a run basically north to South Pole via the Americas. <laughs> well, the touting it is the greatest run in history. It's the pole to pole run. Ten months, 13 days later, wow. I finished at the South Pole. What kept you going? Um, my wife passed away um, a few years before that. And uh, so the only thing that kept me from, from doing myself in it was the simple fact that my kids needed me. I mean, this, that's a pretty hectic story, to be honest with you. Like, your mind must be, you've got to be able to keep your mind level. Most important thing I live my life by is finish anything that you start. And then the second thing is... Pat Farmer, welcome to Straight Talk, mate. Mate, great to be here. Thanks very much. You're looking awesome. Uh, I don't know so much about that. I wish you'd tell my wife that. <laughs> no, you look fantastic. I mean, I, I, I'm looking at you now. Um, you're looking very, very trim. I mean, I guess you're training for something. Yeah, I'm just, yeah, I'm just getting back into training. Of course, I finished the run around Australia six months. I uh, lost a lot of weight on the road. I was doing six months, approximately two marathons a day, every single day for six months around the country. And as, um, as you would know, the last six months of last year was incredibly stiflingly hot, especially at the top end of the country and uh, in, in the centre of the country, which is where I finished in Uluru. That was a run for The Voice. Uh, I was speaking at functions every single evening, so there was a lot of pressure on it and, and consequently, you know, uh, I, I lost a lot of weight. So it wasn't like a standard sort of race thing. No, I guess that's what I want to get into. Like... Uh the obvious question is why, um, but let's sort of go back a long, long way. So, what you're 61 years of age, around yeah, now, yeah. And uh, I, I remember, I, I think I might have made a smart ass comment to you earlier on. Looks like you've got a kilo per year of uh, chronological age, so that's like uh, what are you, 66 kilos now? Yeah, about that. Yeah, so, well, yeah, yeah, about that. Yeah. yeah. And what we, by the way, what would you normally walk around if you're not training? If you oh, haven't look, been um, training, look, my race weight is 61 kilos. Yep. 
Uh, so I'm fast when I'm 61. If I'm 59, uh, I start to lose a bit of energy and anything below that, I'm just lethargic. Um, anything above 65 and I'm lethargic again. So, you know, I always find that sweet spot and, um, you know, that's homeostasis for me. It's where my body just feels good and I run well and I'm strong. That's interesting. I mean, I, I did want to talk about your youth or young years and I will. I'll park it for a sec though. You said homeostasis, um, which is a, a function the body performs, generally speaking, a function the body performs to make sure you've got the right amount of salt, the right amount of glucose, right amount of water, blah, blah. Your body's always adjusting and sort of re-leveling. So homeostasis for you, though, in a physical sense, when you feel good, is in that range, that weight range. But what you're saying, I think what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, you feel right in other words, everything is in good shape, ready to run, ready to compete, um, good to walk around, healthy, around 60-something, 60 61, 62, 63 kilos. Yeah. Above that, we're only talking a kilo. There's not much in it. That's a very small number for sensitivity in a sensitivity sense. Yeah. Below, above that like and or below it, you don't feel as though you're right. Well, that's exactly it. Mark, you would know, you're, you know, you're somewhat of an athlete yourself, but you would know that what happens with the human body is it's basically two mechanisms. There's the mind and the body. The body has this, this zone where it is best at and it, it goes to find that zone on a regular basis. I'll give you an example. I, I've run across the deserts of the world, so some of the driest places on the planet, some of the hottest places and indeed some of the coldest places on the planet. And during the course of, of those, those journeys, um, my body has just come to a point where it almost refuses to lose any more weight and it has an inability to put any more on because I simply can't get my hands on the calories. I'm talking about places like the North Pole and uh, Death Valley in the United States and places like that. So uh, my body just starts to regulate itself and becomes a lot more efficient. So the minor amount of calories that it can get, it really protects those and looks after those, and it still functions as good with just that minor amount of calories where in a normal circumstance, if I was back here training, I'd have to be taking in a lot more calories. To put that in simple terms, I'll go for a run with other runners. And they say to me, well, we know you're not drinking as much as we are. And yet you still seem to be handling the conditions okay. It's my body has adapted to the conditions. That's, ama- well. that's pretty amazing. Like when, when you think about you know, all the narrative that goes around today about longevity and health span, lifespan, all the stuff that's going on at the moment and about – you know, right amount of sleep, right amount of food, nutrition, right amount of exercise, um, and movement, etc. Most people would not know where their sweet spot is in terms of physical weight. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, sometimes we go to such an extent, we say, well, let's go and get a DEXA scan, see where our fat's deposited and all that sort of stuff and see what our bone density looks like and what our muscle to fat ratios like etc and organ ratio etc and which is fine i know i'm I'm a big believer in those dexas they're they're good but what you're saying is you don't need dexa you don't need to do a metabolic rate test um you don't need to do a vo2 max test pat farmer has been doing this for so long and probably with such intensity you know within a kilo yeah where your sweet spot is that's exactly it but but having said that let me qualify that 
I have spent time at the Institute of Sport. I have been analysed by so many doctors and sports scientists. I've been used as a guinea pig for everybody from clothing designers and uh, special new fabrics all the way through to all the way through to food, nutrition, supplements, uh, um, vitamins, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so I've learned over the time. I've learned a lot from them. They've learned a lot from me. But more than more importantly than anything, I've learned a lot about myself. And this is the key. Any, any great athlete or anybody that's really good at something, anything, they know a lot about themselves. Uh, and at the end of the day, we are all individuals. So our environment plays a role in it. Uh, um, anything to do with our, our heritage, our hereditary symptoms play another role in it. Um, but then aside from that, it's, it's about just understanding where your sweet spot is, where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, and then just going with them and, you know, doing whatever's accordingly for you. So I find that I can run long distance, uh, longer, uh, stronger, better than perhaps any other person on the face of the planet, but they are incredibly long distances. So uh, when did you first find this out? Like, um, how, how old were you when you knew you could run a long distance? Well, I, I took up ultra running when I was 18 years old. Uh, before that, I was the same as everybody else. I played sports the same as everybody else. I played football, cricket, when I say football, rugby league, a little bit of soccer uh, and um, uh, cricket like anybody else. But I didn't excel in those fields. Where'd you um, grow up? Can I, where'd uh, you grow? Yeah, so I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney, Which out, of, part out, of, out of Granville. Out of Granville, Granville yeah. boy, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I grew up there and uh, it was amazing really because I was inspired by Cliff Young in the first Sydney to Melbourne oh, race. Young. And Cliff, he ran from Westfields at Parramatta through to Westfields in Doncaster in Victoria and he won that inaugural race, that first race. He shuffled. He, well, he did. He shuffled along, but he did what suited him. So other people couldn't run the Cliffy style, and I tried, but it's it's Can you was very it awkward. The style? So Cliffy used to keep his arms down very low to his body. He had incredible economy of movement. He had bad joints, bad hip joints, and things like that. So and I and I witnessed in races later on when I was crewing for other runners in the Sydney to Melbourne race in order to learn about that event that um, his hip would come out of place on a regular basis and his support crew would lie him down on the side of the road uh, push his hip back into place, and with oh a God. yelp like a dog, he oh would get it, he would get up, and he would take off again. And what the fuck? He's he was su- tough as nails, you know. But a lot of our farmers are a lot of those. A lot of those tough old farmers. That's exactly what they're well, like. They just get on with the job. Farmer by name too, by the way. By he so was. But you're a, you're a uh, farmer, <laughs> yeah. but, but a, by, by name. But if you don't mind, I just want to just sit on uh, Cliffy Young for a little bit because. A lot of people wouldn't remember him, but I certainly remember him. So he won the first Sydney to Melbourne, as I recall. Yeah. Um, I also recall he didn't have running shoes or something like that. Well, let me tell you the the story behind the myth. So, yeah, so the bottom line was there was this great event that was put on. Uh, Westfield decided that they wanted to have a promotional event. They wanted to showcase their stores around Australia and the size of their stores and, and get their name out there. So they came up with the idea of, of a cash prize for a running event, uh, but an unusual running event, an ultramarathon. Now, ultramarathons were made famous in the 1800s in England and Europe. Uh, they weren't that big in Australia, but they were about to be. So they held this race, and I remember the prize money for this event was $50,000, which was a lot of money back in the 1980s. You bet. Uh, and especially in running, because we get paid peanuts. Uh, and so consequently, um, 
runners came from all over the shop to compete in Around this the event. World? Uh, not in the first one. That was just restricted to Australians. Right. Uh, second year round, Giannis Cruz showed up. Once That's the right. message got out there, everybody from around the world wanted to come to Australia and have a taste of this money. And um, and the, you know the prize money and the opportunity. So anyway, Cliffy Cliffy decided he would go in this race. He had uh, trained on his hundred acre property down in Colac in Victoria in gum boots. He used to. It's anybody that knows that that southern part of the Victorian coastline, they get a lot of rain. So the Great Ocean Road, all that region, Dean's Marsh, uh, Colac, they get a lot of rain regularly, and it's great dairy country. But everywhere where there's dairy country, there's a lot of cow poop and there's a lot of water and it's muddy most of the time. And so Cliffy got around most of the time in his gumboots. And he would often run into town and back doing a marathon for training. So 42 Ks in a pair of gumboots. The media came out to see him and interview him and they saw him running in the gumboots and that's where the whole myth began. Did he run in the gumboots from from Sydney to Melbourne? No, not the Sydney to Melbourne race. He had a pair of runners. Yeah, he had a pair of Puma's running shoes And it's interesting, you talked about his shuffle, the Cliffy shuffle, Cliffy Young uh, shuffle. Um, I do remember him, his arms were sort of down by his side when he was running. It was sort of – it was a shuffle. Um, And he won it. Is that because – did he not walk at any stage? I mean, in this – this event, do, do people walk at some stage or do they run the whole way? Oh, you can walk, you can crawl, you can do whatever you want, but you have to get from point A to point B in the fastest possible time. So it's not efficient to walk, it's not efficient to crawl, uh, but you do whatever you've got to do. Uh, and all of us have found us, ourselves in both those states at different points in time. So Cliffy's greatest advantage was his ability to go without sleep. So he would sleep, you know, basically 20 minutes inside, uh, well, for the first couple of days inside the first uh, 24-hour period. So so imagine sitting up in your lounge room watching a TV for 24 hours and somebody says you're only allowed to have 20 minutes sleep. Now let's take you off the lounge and get you out there running and saying I want you to run, I want you to run at your best and then we'll give you 20 minutes sleep and that's exactly what Cliffy did. So he had this ability to be able to go without sleep and push on. All of the other runners, they were racing 140, 160, even 180 kilometres in 24 hours and then they well, they actually did that in about 14, 16 or even 18 hours, so approximately 10K an hour. And then they would have a long break for four, six or eight hours. And then they'd get out on the road and they'd hammer it again. Cliffy would just get to the stage where he'd catch up to them, just overtake them, and then they'd get back on the road. So this happened for a few days on in the early start of the, the first race. And then they realised it's Cliff Young, he's never going to beat us. We're not worried about him. He's this little old guy. He's in his 60s. Was he in his 60s? Yeah, he was in his 60s. Wow. And they, and they decided, why bother? So then they went back to their regular sleeping patterns and slept a lot longer instead of being startled and getting up early because they thought another runner was going to overtake them. And that's where they made their mistake. Typical tortoise and the hare event. Cliffy got 30 k's ahead of the rest of the field after three days. By this stage, they were getting down close to Nimley Bell, Bombala, Cairn River on the New South Wales-Victorian border. Uh, incredibly cold of the mornings. This is around Easter time, so icy cold early in the mornings. Uh, nobody wanted to be out there, but you had to be. It was part of the event. 
And so they were worn out, beat up, broken and tired and they didn't push themselves any harder than they had to. They gave up on worrying about Cliffy, thinking that they could overtake him any time it suited them. But with 30 k's ahead of the rest of the field, when they finally realised he was a threat, it was too late for them and too hard to pull him back. And he just stayed consistent all the way through to Doncaster. The numbers of people swelled from being two or three people, including people like myself, a young apprentice motor mechanic out the front of a garage at Granville watching him run by, uh, from to being two or three hundred people deep. There was literally tens of thousands of people lined the streets of Victoria to see him come over the Dandenong Ranges and into Doncaster in Victoria and win the first Sydney to Melbourne Ultra Marathon. And he was such an inspiration to this nation. And he was an inspiration because he wasn't an athlete. He was a poor, simple farmer that believed in himself, had tenacity, was determined and just got out there and put one foot in front of the other. And so those people are a greater inspiration than our great athletes because you can relate to them. Everybody related to Cliffy and thought, if he could do that, maybe I can do something good with my life. And that's exactly what I thought. I was craving for something in those days. I was a young fellow. I wanted something. I wanted to be somebody. I wanted to make something in my life. Uh, And when I saw Cliff Young do that, I thought, my God, if he can do that, surely I can. And it wasn't long after that I realised just how hard it was to actually try and maintain a pace for a long period of time. Remember the first one? First one? Well, let me tell you about the first thing I did directly. I was so inspired. The very next day after that event was over, I ran to work from where I live, which was approximately six k's from home. I had never done any distance running at all. Threw half a dozen bricks in the back of a backpack and ran from home to work. Showed up at work with all these bruises all over my back. It was such a silly thing to do. Uh, But highly motivated by Cliffy and thinking to myself, I'm going to do the Sydney to Melbourne one day. And it wasn't long after that that I got the chance to qualify and eventually get into that race myself. Well, that sounds quite modest um, when you say qualify. In terms of being able to go on the next Sydney to Melbourne, um, what's the process of becoming qualified? So, like, you have to run a few marathons or what did you have to do? Well, yeah, you had to to do an ultra. So an ultra marathon is anything over the distance of a standard marathon, which is 42 kilometres approximately. So 50 k's and beyond, but the race organisers had lined up races like from Parramatta to Bathurst up over the up over the Blue Mountains, and you had to do that in 30 hours. You had to run from say Melbourne to Colac via the Great Ocean Road up through Lawn and Anglesey, and you had to do that within 30 hours. And we're talking, you know, close to 200 k's in distance, or you had to run around a 400 meter track, a, a measured. Uh, track in a particular race that they would organise uh, and you had to knock up a minimum of 160 kilometres in 24 hours. Around a 400 metre track? Around a 400 metre track. Oh my God, that's a lot of... That's, that's uh, a four, lot of laps. That's yeah. 160. That's, that's a head bender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, that's a lot of laps. Yeah, it sure is. But we got to change direction every eight hours, so it was, it was and nice. And what speed are you running at? Like... Uh, well, it varied. Let, let me tell you about the first one I ever did. So I decided I was going to go in the Sydney to Melbourne race. And so the qualifier was on at Henley Oval at Botany in, in uh, Sydney, not far from here. Uh, and I convinced my family I was going to do this event. I was going to go in the Sydney to Melbourne races and I needed them, the crew for me on the side. So that meant food and drink and lap scoring. So there was a lap scoring tent. There was 30 hopefuls from around the country that wanted to compete in the Westfield run. We all lined up 
uh, the gun went off and I took off and I started running. Uh, and I felt everybody else was pacing themselves and I hadn't learned about pace at that stage, so I just ran and I ran hard and fast. I was doing 14, 16, 18 Ks an hour uh, for long periods of time. Uh, and I was running around the track and running around the track and running around the track. And after an hour, the race organisers started putting up the leaderboard and there was I number one. So I started thinking to myself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win this race. I'm going to go home, have a, have a bath, have some dinner. I'll come back, pick up my trophy in the morning and my certificate saying that I've qualified for the Sydney to Melbourne race. And, uh, and this is a piece of cake. I should have taken this business up earlier. And then the second hour came through. And I was still in the lead. And then the third hour came through and I was way ahead of the rest of the field, but I started to feel dizzy. I started swaying from side to side and I moved to the outside lanes of the track. And my brother Bernie came over to me, he was crewing for me. He said, Pat, what's the matter? I know she's slowing down. I said, Bern, I don't know, mate, I can't figure it out. I don't feel well. And he said, well, what's wrong? And I said, I feel dizzy. And he said, well, well why, what, what, you know, what can we do? And I said, I don't know, but I said, I've been watching the other runners. And they've been taking in something to eat and something to drink. Maybe I should have a drink now. <laughs> <laughs> After three hours of running, you know, I'd clocked up well, you know, almost 40K uh, uh, in the three hours. And, and that, you know, and then he says this to me. So he said, well, what do you want? And I said, I can't think straight, but I don't know. Just get me anything. So Bernie raced across the road. He got me a can of Coke and the biggest hamburger you've ever laid your eyes on was dripping with fat and bacon and eggs and you name it. Uh, and he came back and I moved to the outside lane of the track where I was allowed to get aid. I grabbed the hamburger. I woofed it down. I threw down the, the Coke. Uh, I, my eyes opened up like headlights on a car and I took off again and I lapped everybody and then I went around again, I lapped them again, come around for the third lap and I fell to my knees in the middle of the track and, and I just vomited all over this beautiful synthetic <laughs> oh track and all the other runners were running around me and cursing and carrying on and the race organisers grabbed me by the ankles and pulled me to the outside lane of the track and I, there I lay in my vomit and the mess there for a for seemed like hours and eventually my brother Bernie comes over again with a bucket of ice water chucked it over the top of my head and said can we go home now and I got up and I staggered around I said no nah, no nah, I haven't finished yet and I pushed on all the way through to 10 a.m the next morning 24 hours after the race started 24 hours yeah but I, I was you know barely barely awake you know and uh, sleep deprivation uh, lack of food lack of nutrition lack of common sense and brains, all the th sorts of things that were holding me back. The only thing that was pushing me forward was my tenacity. Uh, the gun went off at the end of it all. I collapsed on the tracks and John's ambulance came over, put me on stretcher, put intravenous in my arms and there I lay uh, and everybody was going up, getting their trophies, their medals. The race, one race organiser came over to me, his name was Mike Agostini. He was from Trinidad. He was 800 metre from a runner from Trinidad, Olympic runner. And he was the race manager in those days. And he came over to me and he knelt down beside me and he said to me, Pat, is it true that you've never run before in your life? And I said, yes. And he said, is it true that you've never done an ultra marathon or even a marathon? And I said, yes. And he said, you've never even done a fun run? And he said, and I said, yes. And he said, he looked at me and I said, look, I said, I'm sorry. I know I didn't do enough kilometers to get into the race. I, I had done 126 kilometers in 24 hours. 
and I needed to do a minimum of 160. Uh, and he looked at me and he said, I think you've got what it takes to become a great ultramarathon runner. Now, he could have chosen his words and he could have said, look, you're a bit of an idiot, but if you learn about food and nutrition and you look after yourself, you know, maybe, and you come back and you give it a better shot next year, maybe you might get there one day. But instead, he looked me in the eye and he said, I think you've got what it takes to become a great ultramarathon runner. And for me, for a kid from the western suburbs of Sydney that had been put down all his life and never amounted to anything, this was the first time anybody had ever said anything really positive to me and anybody really believed in me. And that was all it took to ignite the spark inside me that allowed me to go on and do all the many things I've done for the last 42 years ever since. Isn't it amazing? Sometimes you just need that one person to believe in you and tell you. Absolutely. You just need it. Yeah. Um, oh, we crave it. As yeah, human beings, I, we crave does. it. Everybody does. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, that, that's a bloody great story. Um, obviously, you didn't qualify because you had to do 160. Not that year. Not, not that yet. year. But uh, I'll tell you something that he did do for me. He put me on the crew for Eleanor Adams. And Eleanor had come over. For, this was the, the, the next Sydney to Melbourne race that was on. Uh, the following year, and uh, she turned out to be the first female to ever run that distance and the first female to finish it. She finished in third place overall out of 30 of the best in the world, first woman and third overall behind Giannis, only behind Giannis Cruz and one other runner. Uh, and I learned so much from her on that journey. And then, of course, the following year after that, I did qualify. I went in the Sydney to Melbourne races and the rest is history. I, my best placing in that event was uh, seventh place. And then I went across to America to compete in the Trans-American race uh, from California to New York. I finished wow. second in that race and then my, my career just sort of took off after that. Can you take me through some of these um, – some of the more interesting um, ultramarathons you've done, like in terms of ge geography – like well, the, the race across America was brilliant. It was, it was modelled off the old Bunyan Derby, which was on in 1928-1929. And Harry Abrams, who was one of the runners who competed in the 1929 Bunyan Derby from California to New York, uh, was actually there at the finish line when I finished in New York. And there's a book called Flanagan's Run by Tom McNabb. And it, it was out with Penguin. Uh, it's hard to get these days. But all the characters in this book are just these amazing characters and it talks about this circus that went from town to town and the runners raced from one town to the next town, caught up with the circus, were hosted by the mayor and the people of the towns that night with a big open-air dinner uh, that they would all sit at the dinner tables and all the locals would come and sit down to dinner with them. And so this race was modelled around that. And uh, like I said, the characters were the same. There were some really eccentric, unusual characters. I'll give you an idea. Um, when I competed in it in 1995, uh, um, there was this one guy, uh, um, they called him Mountain Man and he was from the Rocky Mountains and uh, uh, he were, you know, had a beard that went almost down to his knees and he was competing in this race and I'll never forget we came into Colorado. Uh, we just finished in Vale of Colorado, so up this very steep incline for the end of the day's 80-kilometre journey. Uh, he was sitting at the finish line 
with a great big tub of ice cream and a bottle of Kahlua. <laughs> and he would take a scoop of ice cream, then fill it up with Kahlua and then have another scoop. And I said to him, my God, how can you, how can you do that and run? And he said, oh, I'm just replacing the carbs. And I just saw him like, well, two things I, I made sure of from that point. One, that I was never behind him. Uh, and and uh, two, that I never touched the same sort of diet as what he did because, you know, he, he ended up finishing the race miraculously. But uh, talk about fart, that guy, man. <laughs> <laughs> he, he had so much gas coming out that rear end. He probably didn't care, though. <laughs> he didn't care at all as he was in front of everybody else that had to deal with it. <laughs> Death, Death, Death Valley, I mean, I, I've driven through Death Valley. And in fact, I remember stopping off there. Um, I was on my way to Vegas once from LA to Vegas. And I stopped off in Death Valley and there was a, like a cafe restaurant thing with this massive big thermometer. There's really, really big tall therm- yeah. thermometer. And I just remember getting out of the air-conditioned car before I went into the cafe and the heat was like, my God, like it's just crazy. And it's, it's they call it Death Valley for, for a good reason. You ran through there? Yeah, the temperatures regularly get up around uh, 50 degrees yeah. around there. And, uh, you know, like 50 degrees Celsius is pretty damn serious. And, and uh, you know, I, I think I know the cafe you're talking about because I remember we'd finished our run at the end of that day and I came into these, probably the very same cafe. There's not much around. No. Uh, and uh, they had a tin of dehydrated water. It had a picture of a, of a vulture on the front of it and it had dehydrated water on the side, only open in emergencies. <laughs> and I thought, that's a quirky thing. I'll get that. But what happens when you run through like something like that ridiculously hot temperature? I mean, are you drinking water every 10 minutes? Like, what's your strategy? Like, uh, is there a process? Yeah, uh, the process actually starts with your training. So uh, this is what a lot of people forget. You know, if you haven't put the hard yards into the training, if you haven't done the work there, and, you you know, it's the same with business mentoring. It's the same with everything. If you haven't done the work behind the scenes, then you're not going to be successful at the end of the day. So it's all about training your body to get used to a minimum amount of fluid uh, um, at regular intervals uh, when you can get it. And so it's about training, carrying fluid with you, carrying the bottles with you. So a lot of people use camel's backs. I don't like them. I find that camel's back makes my um, back very, very sweaty and just the weight of it. But And, and I chafe on the back and then it sort of it, it's a problem for me. But um, so too other people don't like wearing a belt with bottles on it and I wear a belt with a bottle on either side, per- perfectly balanced, a 500ml bottle on either side and I have safety pins uh, pinning that to my pants so it doesn't bounce around too much and just the style that I run, the way that I run, that suits me, it suits me as a balance and it's easy to grab and pull out and put back in and that sort of thing. So it, it all comes down to what you're used to. So. Physically, what you're used to as far as the movements are concerned. Um, mentally, what you're used to as far as the discipline's concerned and knowing that you've got X amount of water, it's going to allow you for X amount of time, it's going to get you through for X amount of time uh, and, and your body's going to be able to survive on that because you've done it before in training. Is it, but do, do, do you apply any um, medical, or, or medical and or science to this? Do you sort of consult someone to say, okay, um, I'm, I'm 60-something kilos, um, Mr. Scientist or doctor, um, how much fluid do I have? Eighty percent of my body's maybe fluid. Um, scientist says, well, therefore, Pat, you need to have uh, in this temperature, given the, the amount that you're sweating, you need to take half a liter every half an hour. Do you, I mean, do you get scientific about it? Yeah. Look, I, I as I mentioned earlier on, I'd spend a lot of time. Uh, I, 
working with the Institute of Sport uh, and also uh, the AIS. Uh, yep. Yeah, the AIS and some of the chief scientists down there. Uh, Dick Telford, a great mate of mine, one of, one of the great sports scientists of the world, uh, based down there in Canberra. Uh, Helen O'Connor was the chief nutritionist for our Olympians in the 2000 Games. So um, people like that have worked with me and, uh, you know, on my food, my nutrition, uh, my, my uh, fluid intake. Uh, things like creatine, things like uh, isotonic drinks. Can we talk about some min- mineral replacements, mineral yeah. replacements, and things like that. So, consequently, uh, you know, I, I basically work on five hundred mils every every hour, and within the hour, I usually get uh, between ten to sixteen k's done. Five hundred mils, so a liter every two hours. Uh, yeah, liter every two hours. So, and when you just mentioned a couple of supplements there, so. Creatine, which is, um, you know, we see bodybuilders use it, but actually I know a lot of fighters who use it because it's only minimum amount, five milligrams a day, because it's actually quite good for your brain, yeah, brain health. It also, brain it also helps you to retain the fluids. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Is that, yeah, which is, is most re- important because all of your cells, you know, once you, once, once you get dehydration, uh, it's very hard to recover from that, especially if it's a multi-day event. You've got to back day up, back up day after day after day. So, so long as you can keep your body soft, supple, moist uh, on the inside as well as the outside, it'll function properly. So, creatine helps you sort of sort of soaks the water up, or, or, or sort of holds yeah, the yeah. water. Yeah, it helps. Yeah, it helps yeah. enormously. And, and what about um, I think like you know we see all these. I don't want to name the name the names, but these um look, um, they're all drinks. they're all most of them have got aid at the end of it. ADE at the end of it. So Powerade, Gatorade, yeah, yeah, yeah. Staminates, yeah. all those. I mean, in the old days, you know, Staminate, everybody used to play tennis and yeah. they were drinking Staminate. They used to drink barley water yeah, at yeah. one stage. Yeah, yeah, barley water was, yeah, barley water was another. I swear by coconut water, to be quite yeah. honest with you, it's 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 natural and uh, uh, that's if I can get my hands on that, that's what I have. So, so those um, – Let's call them those things that have a mineral replacements, potassium, potassium and magnesium. If you just remember nothing else but those two, potassium and magnesium are the two two things that cause your body to cramp if you if you're missing those things. And so you can take a soft banana, but it takes longer to digest, or you can have those mineral replacements within a drink. In the old days, uh, you know, our soldiers used to take salt tablets. But the problem is they were so the, the sodium actually dehydrates your body even more. So you don't want to be taking in sodium. You don't want to... Oh, really? What you want to be taking is the potassium and the magnesium. So those two constituents mainly. Because I remember when I was a kid, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I used to work in a factory and it was always, it was really hot. And uh, they used to give salt tablets. Yeah. I used to, and uh, I used to, when I used to drink it, it would feel like puking because it, the saltiness was sort of – felt like I was drinking seawater. Well, I was the same at school, at, at school when I was a kid, you know, because everybody swore by salt tablets. But where that philosophy came from was basically when you sweat a lot, uh, the salt comes out of your body and you can taste it. If, you, if you, you lick your arm or whatever, you can taste the salt in there. So there's no two ways about the sodium is coming out, but when it's, it's coming out, it's bringing out everything else as well. All that moisture, all the, the, the potassium, the magnesium and so many other different things. So because they could taste the salt, the sodium, they thought, oh, we'll throw that back in. But uh, that then your body dehydrated even more, trying to dissolve, uh, trying to utilize the the potassium. Uh, sorry, the sodium, and consequently you dehydrated even more. I mean, I guess it's sort of like a semi-trauma to you in some respects. You're putting your body through a bit of a trauma. Um, 
depending on the conditions, particularly external conditions like that, you know, like the, where, where you are, whether it's in Death Valley, Valley or it's in the Antarctic or whatever the case may be, um, which has been the most challenging for you in terms of physical conditions? Like is it rain, heat, snow? What is it? Which oh, one? it's the cold for me. The cold. cold. Like I can deal with the heat. It, it can be as hot as hell. Um, well, definitely and I, is. And, and I'll just live with it. I'll just – like I don't like it but I'll, I'll live with it. But the cold, uh, there is nothing more painful, nothing worse than the cold. How do you mean? Well, you get temperatures of minus 30 degrees. Uh, and Where are we talking about now? Uh, we're talking about the North Pole. So I, I, I did a run that I was dropped off by Russian helicopter in the North Pole. I dragged a sled out of there all the way through to Canada. And from there I made my way down through Canada, United States of America, uh, all the way down through Mexico, Nicaragua, El Salvador, Costa wow. Rica, uh, all the way down through uh, even through the Darien jungle and then out the other side to Colombia, Ecuador, continuing on down through Chile, Peru, Argentina. To the bottom uh, of South and, America. And then, and then I was flown across from there to Union Glacier. Uh, Union Glacier is uh, basically a camp behind some, behind some mountains at the, in, the south, in the South Pole region. Uh, and then from there... I dragged uh, or basically ran out from there down to Hercules Inlet, hooked around from there and head back up into the <laughs> South Pole. So basically north to South Pole via the Americas. Uh, and during the course of that journey, you know, a lot of people, because they're familiar with it, will talk about the South Pole. But there is nowhere more inhospitable on this planet than the North Pole. The North Pole is an ice cube that floats on the ocean. It's just an ice cube and it just floats there. And because it's like that, it is moving all the time. You get a warm current come through underneath and it will melt before your eyes and all of a sudden you're looking at the ocean below you. Uh, if you get a, a hot current, uh, sorry, a cold current come through, it's like something out of a Superman movie where you've got all these uh, uh, icebergs f- forming under uh, in the ocean underneath you, underneath the ice, and then smashing their way through the ice in front of you. So it's continuously groaning, cracking apart, forming back together from one day to the next. And then on top of that, you've got the snowstorms, you've got the strugi, which is the, the hard ice that is blown in a certain direction that you, you're tripping over almostly because it's so damn hard and, you, and you've got to get over the top of that each time. So it's just the ribs and the ice basically. But when you're tired and you're pulling a sled that weighs 100 kilos and you weigh, as I did when I came off the, the ice in the North Pole, 49 kilos. Whoa. Now, we spoke earlier on about my ideal weight. You know, when I made it through to Canada, I weighed 49 kilos. There was nothing of me. I was just all skin and bones. Uh, and uh, I was, uh, you know, how I made that, I'll never know. I look, I look back at it and I just think to myself, you know, it was uh, the most horrendous time in my life. Uh, and that North Pole, it's like hell on earth. It really is the most inhospitable place. Do you, on the perilous, do you ever feel like you've, you've got perilously close to um, death. Oh, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. And there, there was actually a moment within that run itself where I was, I was, I would have been very happy to give up my life and just lay down in the snow and the ice and just close my eyes. What keeps you going? Uh, it was, uh, well, what happened with that was um, 
imagine we're all, you know, I'm all covered up. I've got all my gear on. I've got a, a neoprene vest over my, fa- uh, over my face, a mask over my face. I've got the goggles on, I've got the beans on, I've got three sets of clothing on, all special clothing, three sets of gloves on, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I had finished the end of a day's journey that uh, what, this one day and it was a snowstorm all day and outside and I was setting up my tent uh, and I was there with two guides uh, and I was setting up my tent. We're into about day 10 of the journey, uh, um, which ended up taking me 39 days to get across the, the ice, the 800 kilometres of the ice from the North Pole out to Canada, uh, out toward Hun Island. Uh, and um, I got in my tent in my haste I'd, I'd stripped off my, my mask and I'd left it on my, uh, on my sled. So I got inside my tent. I went to, w- went to sleep in my sleeping bag, my only sanctuary. I remember looking outside of my sleeping bag, which still sustained you through temperatures of minus 40 degrees. It was the only bit of sanctuary I had. Uh, and I would look out at my clothes that I'd taken off that day uh, and they were just covered in snow and ice and covered in ice. And there's nothing you could do about that. And they're the clothes that you have to put on to try and start the day each day. So you put an ice on just to get into the ice every single day. Uh, and it's a miserable thought thinking about that. Uh, and I remember I, I got up the next morning and I was ready to go again and I started getting dressed and I put on my three sets of gloves, I put on my thermal underwear and all the rest of the gear and everything else with it. And I was looking for my mask and my, my guide outside is yelling out to me, hurry up, you know, because there, there was still a storm outside and they, you know, they needed to get going uh, to try and stay warm. Uh, and I was looking for this mask everywhere and I couldn't find it. I was getting really frantic and I finally, I, I, I looked out the, the flyer, the, the tent outside and here was this patch of snow over the end of my, my sled, which was basically just a cut down kayak. I raced out there, I grabbed it, I brought it in and that was my mask. I dropped it on the ground, it was like a piece of steel. I grabbed my thermos that had melted snow in it uh, that I was using to drink for through the day uh, and I tipped that over and I tried to belt the ice off my mask and the guys are yelling out to me and I'm ready to go and I'm not ready to go and I'm anxious and I'm worried and I put it on my face and all of a sudden I stepped out of the tent to pull the tent down and then it stuck to my face. Oh, my God. We got moving and all day long it was just stuck to my face after about two hours of, of, uh, of dragging my sled through the snow and the ice that morning, we finally got behind a little bit of an iceberg uh, and the guys were taking in their olive oil and they were taking in their, um, uh, their, their sustenance, which was basically butter and olive oil. Just fat. Yeah, fat. Uh, and so I grabbed mine out of my sled. I had my butter there and I had my olive oil and I couldn't get my mask off. And so I'd had the, I had these, like these, these icicles, or we call them snotsicles hanging down from my nose. And I, I, I ripped one of those off and tried to force the butter up through my nose because I couldn't get the mask off my face and my mouth was covered. Uh, and then that was too difficult. Then I started trying to pour some olive oil up through my nose uh, 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 and it was, it was very difficult. And in the end, out of frustration, I grabbed the mask and I ripped it. And when I ripped it, the skin came off the front of my face as well with the mask uh, and my face was bleeding and then the, the blood froze straight away. 
I threw back some olive oil and I looked at my mask in, in horror and I put it back on. I didn't have a clue what my face looked like, but it was pretty ordinary. I put it back on. I'd finished that day of that journey and I got back inside my tent that evening and I was ready to die. Uh, I was in a mess. We're only, we're only down to day 11 of the whole journey. Uh, I was planning to run from the North Pole all the way down through the Americas to the South Pole and I was only on day 11 of the whole thing. Uh, I was in a world of pain. My face ached like nothing else. I was bloodied and broken. My, I looked a mess. All the skin was ripped off from my ears across my nose and the other side of my face. Uh, and, you know, I was, I, I, like I said, I could have easily just laid but down. But what kept you going? Well, my kids. I have Brooke and Dylan, uh, my two children. Um, my wife passed away um, a few years uh, uh, before that, quite a few years before that, and uh, so I was their chief carer. Uh, and the only thing that kept me from, from doing myself in or just lying down closing my eyes was the simple fact that my kids needed me. And uh, you might think to yourself, well, and, and I don't blame people for judging me, for saying I shouldn't have even been there if they needed me that much, but... Brooke was in um, boarding school, Dylan was in boarding school. Uh, I had put things in place to make sure that they would be all right no matter what. And I was in a point in my life where I just needed to do something that nobody else on earth had ever done before and this was a moment that I thought would have been a good choice to make and when I was up there on that particular day, that particular journey, it was probably the worst choice I could have ever made in my life. But somehow, some way, I made it through that whole journey. Ten months, thirteen days later, wow. I finished at the South Pole. I mean, I mean, this—that's a pretty hectic story, to be honest. With you. Like that's—that is. I mean, you've done some. We talk about adventurers, but it's sort of like nearly masochistic in some respect because you know you're going to have some sort of drama. Yeah. I'm sure you don't enjoy it, but um, it, it is nearly masochistic and your mindset must be your brain as well as your body being um, in a perfect position in that way in that you know exactly where your body's got to be um, to, to be competitive and to continue doing what you're doing. It's, even it, you're still doing it. You did it last year during the Yes campaign. But also your mind, you talk about homeostasis, Um you must be able to sort of get your brain into or your mind into a homeostatic position, like uh, where you know, forget about your body for a second, like your mind must be, you've got to be able to keep your mind level. In other words, you're not going to give up. You're not going to lay down and die. Um, you're not going to do something worse to yourself. You've got to just, just keep it measured all the time. That sounds pretty tough to me mentally. Yeah, it's, 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 Mark, it's right on the edge. It's right on the edge of losing everything or getting done what you need to do. I, I've got a lot of mates that are ex-SAS uh, and um, they're, they're, they're very similar. We, I think that's why we're such good mates because um, we understand each other. Sometimes you've got to do stuff that really pushes you to limits that you never even imagined or in a normal life you couldn't even imagine like I look back at these things now uh, in my, my normal day-to-day -day things and I never want to be there again and I could never imagine it and yet I keep I keep doing this sort of stuff uh, so there's something in me that makes me makes me crave the unattainable uh, but you know like I've heard sayings, and, and this is so true, you know, if ever you get in a fight with somebody uh, who's not afraid of dying, 
they are the most dangerous force on this planet because once you take fear out of the equation, uh, then they are very, very dangerous people and they, are, they, they will, can do anything and will do anything. Uh, whereas most of us feel the, com- the creature comforts and so we pull back when we feel that we're getting close to that edge. And I see it time and time again, you know, I see a lot of great athletes and they'll be winning a race and then something will happen and their pride gets the better of them and they go, well, you know, I've got this reputation to hang on to, so I'm going to pull out now with this injury or whatever uh, rather than, you know, rather than finish in second or third or fifth or tenth place. Whereas with me, it's always finishing is the prize. Uh, getting the job done is the prize. For me, it's not about first place. It's not about the gold medal, the prize purse. It's not about the status. It's about knowing within my mind, well, I suppose it is the status, yeah, knowing within my mind that people can rely on me to get the job done. I want to talk to you about that. It's just get the job done. It's a thing I often think about myself and I wonder why I'm 68, like why I'm still doing what I do and I, I have this mission and I have this view, you've got to complete the mission. And I have a sense of duty, and I don't know where I got it from. Um, I have a sense of duty, um, and my duty is to complete the mission, whatever my mission is. And um, and I don't want to say it's purpose or whatever. How important is your sense of duty, and uh, and where did that come from? And how important am, am I saying the same thing? I mean, I'm not an extreme athlete like you, but am I saying the same thing to you as you're saying to me? Complete the mission at all costs. Yeah, that's that's your duty. Yeah. No, I think I think you are, and I and I think we're probably more alike than 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 either has realised to this point because it's exactly that. It is exactly that. It's 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 almost like comes a time in a person's life where they either keep going along with the crowd and the herd, or they find defining points about themselves that help them to set up a set of rules in their life that they live by. And those rules don't always make sense to other people, but to them, they make all the sense in the world. And uh, to them, it's the basis of God. It's the basis of, it's the basis of, of, of what they really believe in. And so they never break those rules. No matter how much it's going to harm them, no matter how, what's going to happen, good or bad, they stick by those rules, and I and I think people like you and I and, and um, numerous other people, we set up a set of rules for ourselves, and we just stand by that. And for me, it's very simple. I don't take a backward step. I never take a backward step. And I spoke about this when I finished the run around Australia. The similarities between our coat of arms and the way that I believe life should be, and the way Australians should be. We don't take backward steps. We're always looking forward, always moving forward. Uh, so I don't take a backward step, and I always get the job done, no matter what it is. If I take on study, like I studied my master's degree uh, in business, very, very late in life, only not that many years ago, uh, uh, and I don't even know, wh- I was only going to uni to get a monkey off my back as far as education was concerned because I, I, I left school when I was 14. Uh, but I was determined to stick there and get that job done. Uh, not so that I could brag about that or not so that I could even use it, but just so that I, I knew in my head that that I was as good as anybody else that had that had a degree. Uh, and I think about that with the athletic uh 
abilities that I have and everything, anything else I take on. It's about, it's about if somebody can do it, then there's nothing stopping me from doing it. If they're a human being and they can do that, then I have the same tools. I'll find a way and I'll get it done. I mean, I, 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 mean, I don't have time to talk about the policy, but it seems to me that your whole mental attitude or your, your, the way you approach things as well as politics, as well as everything you've done, it's like that whole sense of duty and this is the job I'm doing and I'm going to get it done and I'm going to do the very best I can and, I, and as you say, I'm not going to pull up, I'm not going to give up. If, if Pat Farmer today is looking to talk to, say, a young Ned Brockman, Brockman who recently did something around from Perth to Sydney, which, by the way, you, you do like every other week sort of thing <laughs> you've been doing your whole life. But, and what Ned did, I'm not taking anything away from it. What would you sort of advice would a more mature um, experienced person like Pat Farmer say to someone like Ned Brockman in terms of his endeavours? Well, probably two, probably two things. One is the uh, most important thing I live my life by is finish anything that you start. So the hardest thing is always getting to the starters line of anything that we do, anything that we do, whether it's signing up for a course or taking on a new job, whether it's getting married, whether it's competing in a race, it's making the decision that, yes, I'm going to do this and taking the first step. And then the second thing is make your mantra, if you've taken the first step, you will take the last step. Those two, that, that, that is so critical. Now, the first step is so hard because you need to engage other people. Like I, I spoke about my first run uh, qualifier for the Sydney to Melbourne race. I finished that race. I didn't, I didn't get the total distance done to qualify for the Sydney to Melbourne, but I finished the, the track race uh, from start to finish. But I convinced my family that I was going to do this. So they were waiting in the wings to give me food, drink, nutrition, and they were there for me. And so I sh- they showed up because I had this this personality, this a bit, this bit that they thought about. Well, maybe he can do this, and that's all any of us have to do. None of us know exactly what the future holds, but if we can inspire other people to believe in us as leaders, to believe in us that we we possibly could come up with the answers, we possibly could fix this problem, we possibly could get something done, then all of a sudden you create a movement. And when you create a movement and you've got other people doing it, then you've got a, a lot more purpose and sounding boards and everything else that goes along with it and you're more likely of success. Uh, but regardless, by sticking to your guns, people are inspired. And that's why when Cliff Young ran past where I worked, he didn't see me. He didn't hear from me. I didn't yell out to him. I didn't speak to him. He didn't even know I was there. I was, I was just a blur on the side of the road as he ran past. But his actions inspired me to go on to raise millions of dollars and, and compete in literally hundreds of events around the world, all because of his actions, not his words. And so, you know, you have to back up everything that you do with actions. So once again, uh, you know, to, to Ned, I would say, Number one, start something, finish it. And number two, number two is always stay true to yourself. Uh, my mother always said to me, she said, as long as you can look yourself in the mirror every single day and be proud of the person that's looking back at you, then you're doing all right, you're on track. Because uh, it's easy for our values to get muddied up depending on who we're listening to or who the government of the day is or, or whatever's happening in world crisis. 
But one person you can't lie to is yourself. And we have an innate uh, ability to know what is right and what is wrong within our own heart. And you can try and reason that out as much as you like. So if you know what's right, if you know what you're all about, if you know what you stand for, if you know your brand, who you are, what you're all about, and you stick to it and you don't let money be your God and you don't let fame and glory be your God and you just stick to that, then you create a brand that nobody else can beat. And that's what it's really all about. Yeah, I'll tell you something. I'll just share something with you, Pat. Um, I mean, I know a lot about you and we've met before, but I, I didn't really have an opportunity to have a long discussion with you about what drives you. I just, prior to coming in here today, um, I just saw my surgeon and I, I, he told me, one o'clock today, you've got to come into the surgery. I must operate on you today. So I was going to ring all the guests up for this morning, including you, and postpone because the surgeon said you've got to be there at a certain time. I thought, nah, fuck it. He said one o'clock. I've got Pat at you know, ten o'clock or nine thirty, what it was. I can do Pat. I can do maybe the next, maybe the next. One. I've got three or four podcasts to do today, and I'll and I'll I'll go and get the surgery after that, um, which is fine. Which I'm going to do, and, that, and that's sort of not my point. But my point is, because I made the decision to complete my mission today, that is see you and do two more podcasts after you. Because I did that, I have listened to what I consider to be one of the most inspirational Australians that I've ever met. That's you. Thank you. And it's an unbelievable reward that I get, which I dare say the unbelievable rewards you get when you learn about yourself and you experience things when you're fucked. You completely don't want to go on. Yeah. That's just what's happened to me. I've just learned something about myself um, and and I got it from the experience of talking to Pat Farmer and the actual inspiration that Cliffy Young gave you just got transferred to me. I'm not going to go do ultra marathon marathons, but it's about just continuing yeah. the mission. Yeah, and it, it become it's become blindingly clear to me after having had this opportunity to sit down and listen to you tell those stories and and share some of those moments to me that you've got to complete the mission. I've got to continue to complete the mission until the day I fucking die. Yeah, no matter absolutely. what it is, mate. And absolutely. I really appreciate it. And you are really a serious, iconic Aussie and you stand for what I consider to be the great Australian character in every way, mate. Thanks appreciate very it. much, Mark. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 